Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Kevin Hill. Kevin is an attorney in Atchison, Kansas, and a board member of Atchison United, a social action group started after the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. I'm in Atchison, Kansas, as we're recording, because I'm here to talk at Benedictine College about racism being a pro-life issue. Atchison, Kansas is probably well-known or most known for being the birthplace of Amelia Earhart, but there's also something in the past history of this community that also needs to be well-known. And that is that in the town of Atchison, Kansas in 1870, a Black man named George Johnson was lynched by a mob. And Kevin's group, Atchison United, once they learned about this history that had been whitewashed and hidden, decided they needed to do something about it. And so they took the concrete steps of marching along the path of this man's suffering and torture. They had a memorial put in the town of Plaque here. They also named it. They prayed about it, and they walked together as a community to try to do something to repair for the horror that happened here. They also took the step of trying to rename one of the streets in the town that was named Division Street that over time really became a racial dividing line for the Black community and the white community. And it became a symbol of what the Black community could and could not do. And one of the reasons we started this podcast is to raise up voices that are not being heard in the Catholic Church and also to shine a light on grassroots efforts and initiatives to fight systemic racism, like what Atchison United is doing here in Atchison, Kansas. I mean, the Catholic Church, while we have a teaching on racism and the human person that should unite all of us, in practice, the church in the United States is divided on the issue of racism. We are not having people grasp it as a grave sin, and they're seeing it mainly simply as political talking points, left versus right, progressive versus conservative, and it's really not. It's an issue of the human family being divided by evil. So you might say, Atchison, Kansas, oh, that's in the middle of nowhere. That's so far removed from me. How is this story at all impacting me? It's impacting you because all across the United States, in any town USA, we have division, and we have division on issues of race. And we need to have grassroots efforts to shine the light of the gospel in these places so that hearts can be converted. And we could start to mend what has been broken within the human family. And that begins with each of us. And so Atchison, Kansas is you. (laughs) It's not that far removed. It's not a unique situation that no one can relate to. We all should be able to relate to Atchison, Kansas and hopefully be motivated to make the changes in our own community. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, and America is committed to hosting very real, honest conversations in the Catholic Church today. These conversations should educate, inspire, and challenge us to think more critically, more faithfully, And really, that's our mission. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. We'll also put the link in the show notes for you. Stick around. 
My conversation with Kevin Hill is up next. So often we talk about systemic racism or other abuses of human dignity in theory. We make arguments and debate the politics around it. But it's so important to look at specific instances of racism, the particular stories of the individual victims, and really the frame of mind and heart of the culprits. I mean, what was motivating them to violence and hatred? And so we are blessed today to be able to talk with Kevin Hill of Atchison United to find out how the organization started and to find out about a maybe until recently, a not-so-well-known act of racial violence that affected their community that Atchison United addressed. So, Kevin, tell me, how did Atchison United get started? What prompted you also to get involved with them? So, Atchison United started after the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. There were several like-minded individuals in town from all different types of faith groups that got together for a march in his memory. I think it was the same day they had a run for Ahmad just to oh, yes. recognize what had happened. And, you know, we all decided and agreed that marches you know, are fine in addressing the evils that are happening in our society, but we need to go another step further and we need to look at how can we as a group bring about some tangible change in our community. So for listeners who may not be familiar with Ahmad Arbery, he was a, I guess, about 25-year-old unarmed African-American man that was jogging near Brunswick, Georgia. You see him on video go into a house that's under construction. He looks around, he comes out and leaves, and he's jogging. And some men in the neighborhood see him jogging, think he is suspicious looking. They arm themselves and get in their trucks and go to chase him down and demand that he stop and submit to their questioning. He, as a free person, does not. And in fact, he runs and they circle him and cut him off. They draw their weapons. He tries to defend himself and he is shot dead. So to me, the conversation even around Ahmaud Arbery started to surface a lot of racist attitudes. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. The fact that a Black man can't walk freely and that he has to stop at the command of some unknown white men. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, uh, like I said, a lot of like-minded folks that were just outraged by what happened. And at the end of the walk, we, you know, everybody was remaining around at the end of the walk. And, and that's when the discussion started on, you know, we need to do more than walk. We need to see about some tangible change. And so I think Unity Street to the Division Street issue, I think, was the first uh, major thing that we tackled at that time. So for our listeners, tell us about this street name change. Why was it called Division Street? Why did you all feel the need to try to change the name of the street? Give us some context for that. Okay, so Atchison, for those who are not familiar with it, it's a river town. It's about 40 minutes from Kansas City. has a long history. A lot of exodusters settled in the area. And so Division Street originally was named as a dividing line between the city limits of Atchison and the county of Atchison. But over time, it took on a different significance, and the significance was racial. And so over the years, it's going back 40 years, there were attempts at changing the name of Division, and those attempts had failed. The city commission over the years, uh, had rejected a lot of attempts by a lot of people to change the name. So that became our first major project. And it was heart-wrenching hearing stories from 
elders in the community on how that name of that street had such an impact on them. And so with those testimonies from the elders in the community and just a lot of groundwork, which included petitions, mm. we had a prayer on division where we lined the division street and prayed for racial harmony. After all those efforts, we presented to the city commission and following that, 5-0 vote to change the name of division. And uh, as you saw yesterday when we drove, the length of the street is now known as Unity Street. So you basically erased the dividing line is what I would really say. But yet in trying to do this, I was surprised to find out, although I should not have been, that there were people who actually opposed the name change, even though there had been testimony about the problem with calling it Division Street, the problem with segregating the Black community over here. And we know that with segregation, oftentimes came substandard facilities, substandard treatment, stigma, all of those things. And yet there are people in 2021 that opposed the street name change. It was very disheartening just to see, including Catholics in the community. I mean, Atchison's mm. a heavily Catholic community, and just the opposition that we faced, they would always preface it by saying, I don't care what the street name was, but, and then everything that followed was just an attack on why we were changing it. And I remember making the comments that uh, you've got, you know, you really need to question the motives of people who were so attached to a street that was named after basically a mathematical term. I mean, Division, Division. Street. Is, it wasn't named after a prominent family. It was named Division Street. And after hearing the testimonies of how it impacted the African-American community of Atchison to still be opposed to it was very, like I said, very disheartening to hear that. Yeah, it's just a very interesting and disappointing thing to hear. But you all were not cowed by that. You all didn't stop. I mean, I found out that you all work with the Equal Justice Initiative regarding George Johnson. And I want you to tell us a little bit about George Johnson, what happened with him in Atchison, Kansas. So George Johnson uh, was an African-American man who was out hunting. It was in the year 1870. So he was out hunting one day and while hunting accidentally shot a white man with some of the buckshot from, I think he was hunting for birds. So the white man was injured, but uh, made a full recovery. But in that day and age, the rumor mill started to fly that a black man had killed a white man. And mm. so George Johnson basically, I mean, at that time he ran from the scene because obviously he's a, a black man who uh, injured a white man. He's worried what might happen, but he did turn himself in. Mm -hmm. The county attorney at the time indicated that charges were not likely against George Johnson because it was an accidental shooting and the man survived. Despite that, there were credible rumors through town that a lynch mob was coming to get George Johnson out of the Atchison jail. And despite the fact that it was circulating throughout town, law enforcement at the time did not take any steps to protect him. So mm. a crowd broke into the jail, took him out. He was brutalized. I mean, he was shot. He was drugged through the streets. A noose was placed around his neck. And then after his torture, after being shot several times, he was still alive. He was then hung from the bridge. 
tragic for us is the fact that history was whitewashed and basically it was erased from the history books of Atchison. It was not mentioned anywhere Mm. for years and years. There were a few mentions in a few publications over the years. And then a local professor, Joshua Wolf, who's a member of our board for Atchison United, did some further research and a lot of facts then were developed about the lynching. In order for a community to become what it needs to become and to evolve, you need to have an honest assessment of your past. And so Mm -hmm. when you have a history of racial injustice, the importance of that being addressed, I think, is that you can then have an honest reflection in order to have an honest appraisal of where you're at as a community. So we partnered with Equal Justice Initiative on, they have a soil collection where soil is collected at the site of lynchings and then their museum in Montgomery has a a display with soil from lynchings all across the United States. And then we also had a historical marker erected that discusses the history of racial terror in the United States and then specifically the history of George Johnson's uh, lynching in Atchison. Just so our listeners would get an idea, when you talk about the crowd, you're not talking like five or 10 people were there to witness the lynching or participate in it. How many roughly would you say? The estimates were at least 2,000 people witnessed his lynching. And so despite the fact you had 2,000 people that witnessed this lynching, no one was ever convicted, indicted for his murder. The thing that having, now that I've visited Atchison, this is not like some town where y'all have 3 million people. 2,000 people, you know, even in, I'd imagine in the 1870s, 2,000 people is a significant portion of the population. Yeah, I think population now is a little over 10,000 in Atchison. I don't know what it was in 1870, but yeah, you're talking a substantial number of our population that turned out for that and witnessed it. And with that, 2,000 people witnessing that, the newspapers at the time did cover it, but then for it to be whitewashed and erased from the city's history after that is shocking. You know, I'm familiar with lynching, have read about it. And I know one of the things that were a part of lynchings in the United States were souvenirs. People would take part of the murdered person's body and keep it. And I'm just wondering, and I know this hadn't, you know, maybe been a part of the research, but I do wonder if there are any families in Atchison that may have that kind of I call them demonic relics. You know, as Catholics, we have relics of our holy saints, but to keep a relic of a murder from a murdered person's body, to know that there was this murder in 1870, witnessed and maybe even participated in by so many people in the town, what does that sow in the soil, if you will? What does that do to further destroy bonds in the community. What was the impact on the Black community? That kind of psychological terror, that kind of reminder to know your place, and then to have a street called division. You know, when you put all these things together, it really says something, not only to the Black community, but also to the white community, what they are able to do to the Black community without consequence. And so to come forward now to 2021 and discover that our Catholic brothers and sisters could not be really taken up with, let's rename the street and maybe even apathetic or opposing it is disappointing. But yet at the same time, that didn't stop you. You kept on. And so what happened? What was that like in that process 
of trying to change the street name, getting the testimonies, sending it over to your elected officials. What was that like? So touching on that, but a lot of people, racism and being an anti-racist has somehow become a political issue. And it's not a political issue. It's not a liberal ideology. It's not a conservative ideology. It's a life issue, a pro-life issue. You had the naysayers, you had the critics, but we really believed in our mission. And it was very, very rewarding when the Equal Justice Initiative sent representative to town, when we had the unveiling of the marker, and we also had the unveiling of a sculpture that was made by an artist from Kansas City that was just a beautiful reflection of the human spirit that's right next to the marker. So mm-hmm. very rewarding. I mean, uh, nothing's easy uh, when you believe in your uh, your mission. The journey you're on, as you well know, can be difficult. But yeah. uh, in the end, it's, it's just so satisfying when the end result is what we've achieved here so far. We'll be right back. Well, you all had a memorial walk. You all also had a prayer service. You all did very public things to remember what happened to George Johnson. To me, this is a way of remembering and acknowledging this evil that happened and trying to counter it by saying this is what we're going to do as a community. And so that to me is spiritual reparation. So I'm wondering what was the faith community like, particularly the Catholic community How much support did you get from the Catholic community with the memorial walk and the prayer service? So yeah, the memorial walk was just an incredibly emotional event. What we did is we retraced the path that George Johnson was taken on, starting Mm. at the location of the old jail. And at each spot that he was brutalized, we would have one of the leaders in the Black community read a summary of what happened to him. And people broke down reading it and we had to pause and comfort the person that was reading just because it was just so emotional. I mean, it was 150 years ago, but we had Episcopalian priests that did the final prayer. And and I think he mentioned that we could feel George Johnson's presence with us today as he Mm -hmm. finally had the recognition from the town that the evil that happened to him and, and some type of an atonement for that. As far as the Catholic community So we have an order of Benedictine nuns at Mount St. Scholastica. They Mm. came out in force. We have Benedictine monks as well. And unfortunately, we did not have any of the monks that came out for that event or for the unveiling of the... uh, Were they invited? So yeah, they were invited. Hmm. And that's why I said, unfortunately, it just seems like race has just become a political issue that's been identified as being with one party or another. And it just seems people are, you know, I can't explain it. I mean, there's also, I think, a belief that that happened so long ago. Why are we dredging up bad memories without recognizing that for us to become the community we need to become, we have to make atonement for past evils because it may well have happened in 1870, but that as well as segregation that we saw Mm -hmm. in the city and even with the Division Street issue I mean, that still manifests itself today with in the form of housing, education, jobs. I mean, we can't just look at things that happened 150 years ago and say it's all in the past. Let's forget that. I think we need to recognize that. So that was disappointing as a Catholic that we didn't have more uh, support. Well, let me ask this. You all are in the Kansas Archdiocese? So Archdiocese of Kansas City, Kansas. And so what about the Archdiocese? Did you all send any invitation or anything like that to someone from the Archdiocese to come participate? How has that been? 
I know I have engaged with the Archdiocese on other race-related issues, and unfortunately, it's not been a very positive interaction. Hmm. I mean, there were some disturbing homilies that tried to address race after the murder of George Floyd that I think were upsetting to a lot of people, and there were attempts to address that through education, training. When you say there were homilies that were upsetting the people after George Floyd, what do you mean? I've heard a lot of disturbing homilies myself that (laughs) missed the mark and seemed to put the blame on George Floyd, like he's to blame for his own murder (laughs) type of thing, and to really dismiss racism and its evil impacts and effects and sort of the, well, if you don't talk about it, it'll go away type of thing. I don't know if those are the kinds of homilies that you heard or the people heard that were upsetting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we that was actually a comment that was made. It was it's real simple. If you don't want police brutality, then don't do anything wrong. It's really simple. Behave yourself and police won't treat you badly. I mean, that's a direct quote from one of the homilies that I'd heard. So for our listeners, because there may be some people that don't understand what's wrong with that comment, a couple things, because I want to say this because I want people to hear this. By saying that, you're doing several things. Number one, you're okaying for the police to behave illegally, to abuse the public trust by brutalizing their citizens. That's not what protect and serve is supposed to be. To also say to the citizen that you deserve to be brutalized if by some measure you're considered not perfectly obeying whatever the police officer is doing. And number three, and by naming the Black community, you are taking any responsibility from the police to do proper policing. You're making it all on the person who does not have the power of the state backing them. The police officer has the power of the state. They can use lethal force. They can abuse their power. And to dismiss that as well, obviously, they must have been misbehaving. And if you would just do as you're told. And and they would never tolerate that for their own community to be treated that way. You know, it's, it's a problem. And it's unfortunate that someone would hear that during the Holy Mass. Well, that, that runs contrary to the pastoral. I mean, the 2018 pastoral letter directly addressed that and said, I mean, despite the great blessings of liberty that this country offers, we must admit the plain truth that for many of our fellow citizens who have done nothing wrong, interactions yeah. with police are fraught with dangers. I mean, it runs contrary to the pastoral letter. There are a number of examples, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Tamira. I mean, there's so many examples of people who did nothing wrong who are not alive because of it. And it's an easy way to dismiss even the need to investigate these things because the assumption is, well, they must have done something wrong. Even if you had done something wrong, you are not supposed to be brutalized and murdered by the police. That's not how our policing works. And it also shows an attitude where you don't see the Black person as worthy of dignity and respect. You don't see them as a member of your community that should be treated respectfully in the same way that you are treated, even if they aren't being perfectly obedient, or even if they are resisting the police. You know, the idea then that you should be brutalized and murdered and and you deserve that is just mind-boggling and enraging and, frankly, quite disappointing to hear that during a Mass from those of us who, when our faith says each and every person is worthy of dignity and respect, it doesn't condition it on how you behave. It just says each and every person is worthy of dignity and respect. Well, my 12-year daughter heard that homily and asked me, why would he say that? And I think it really showed the need for training for priests. And so I I did reach out. Archdiocese has a social justice ministry Mm -hmm. that 
we reached out to had offers. I'm a member of the Knights of Peter Claver. I, mm-hmm. you know, reached out. They offered to do training, diversity training, and we've not heard anything back since those offers were made. And uh, mm-hmm. that's we're going on a year now. Yeah, I'll be speaking at Benedictine College for some of our listeners who are unaware about racism being a pro-life issue. And this is, frankly, in my opinion, an anti-gospel message. It's an anti, this is not what we believe as Catholics. Absolutely. And so to have that kind of discussion could be quite uncomfortable for people, for themselves, for the priest. But these are the type of things I imagine that maybe need to happen. I mean, how would you, what would you counsel people to do in this regard? I mean, you've lived this. Yes, certainly. What would you counsel people to do? I think education's a huge key and, and opening, you know, having your mind open. And and again, getting back to pastoral letter, that, that calls for that. I mean, it calls for priests and lay people to educate themselves on the issue of racism. And they call for priests to do so. And I, I think that's important. A good example is with our Division Street project. I think having the city commission Hearing the testimonies from elders in the community was so compelling to see what that impact had been. So I mean, if you have white priests who their ministry is addressing, in a lot of communities in Kansas, they're addressing communities that may have maybe 1% members who are people of color. You're in a rural area, you're in a community where you don't have exposure to people of color and you don't know the trials and tribulations, you know, you need to get out of your, you need to think outside the box. You need to get out of your comfort zone and listen to people of color and listen to what their experience has been and make amends for what can only be called ignorance. Well, so, okay, you say make amends. I've heard time and again, people say things like, well, I didn't own slaves. I didn't lynch that person. Why do I need to make amends for anything? <laughs> you know, I hear that a lot. And so I'm so surprised when I hear it, because I'm like, we make reparations for all kinds of stuff we haven't done. You know, we make reparations for blasphemy. We make reparations for insults and things like that. Anything that harms the sacred heart of Jesus, you know, we will do these things freely. But somehow when it comes to matters of racial injustice, there's either a hesitancy or an outright animosity toward trying to do these things to make amends. How come you don't have this animosity? I think as a Catholic, uh, I've just always believed strongly in, uh, you know, living the gospel and that it was not a single issue. And I think people need to recognize I'm pro-life, you're pro-life. You can be against abortion and also be anti-racist. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're both pro-life issues. And Pope Francis calls on us to address both of them. And, you know, for people to say, well, I was in the past. Uh, I grew up in Kansas City and Kansas City basically was the birthplace of redlining. A man Mm -hmm. named G.C. Nichols developed the prototype that was used all over the country. And so growing up, you had very white neighborhoods. I attended Catholic school. I had one African-American classmate for one year until I went to a high school that was actually pretty diverse high school. And so this is not ancient history. And the impact of all of this is still with us. And the people People are so resistant to the word white privilege, but uh, it's with us. And I think people need to recognize it. And education, I think, is a huge key. And we need education in our seminaries. We need education with our mm-hmm. priests and lay people to address this issue and, and not be resistant to it. So let me just say this. That when people hear the term white privilege, it, 
makes quite a few people bristle. So let me just give a shorthand explanation of what it means. It doesn't mean that you as a white person won't struggle. doesn't mean you might not have some challenges. What it does mean is that those challenges, skin color won't be one of your challenges. Let's just put it like that. Skin color will not be one of your challenges. That's how people should understand when people talk about white privilege, really, to boil it down. That's what it's like. Let me ask you this. You say you're pro-life and you know you can work on all of these attacks against life. What does that look like when people in Atchison, Kansas say they're pro-life? What does that typically look like? What does being pro-life look like in Atchison, Kansas? Uh, you know, for a lot of people, unfortunately, it, it basically involves two issues, and that would be abortion and, and euthanasia. And uh, we hear a lot about uh, abortion's a preeminent life issue. You know, Pope Francis, I think, has addressed the issue. And as Catholics, we're called on to address all of these. I mean, immigration mm -hmm. reform or uh, racism, abortion. I mean, all right. of those issues, just because you are addressing one does not mean you're excluding the other. And then we're actually called upon as Catholics to address all of those. And un unfortunately, that's not the case. I mean, I've worked as an attorney, I've worked on asylum cases for refugees from Central America. And mm -hmm. uh, it's surprising the, I guess, the critiques I receive from people for being involved in that kind of work. And it's from fellow Catholics. I mean, I have a lot of people who, I don't want to paint the picture of Atchison as a wonderful community. We love living here. There's a lot of people who share our vision and share our mission, but there are also a number who don't. And that's where I think our work is ahead of us, is to address the people who don't share our view of the gospel and what our calling is as Catholics. How much of that is due to people really looking at things from the lens of a political party? Oh, I, I absolutely think that's it. That you think creates maybe some of the hesitancy? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the part. I mean, uh, I know you had a previous podcast on the word woke and how wokeism has become almost a slur that people on the far right like to use against people who believe in social justice issues. and. Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's become a political issue. Racism somehow in the past five years has become politicized when mm. it's not a political issue. It's a, it's a life issue. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing about this particular experience that's happening in Atchison, Kansas, and the development of your group, Atchison United, and some of the concrete things you all are doing in your community. There are many more things I know that you are doing, but we were only able to touch on a few. And I'm hoping that inspires many of our listeners to figure out, well, what can I do in my community? So thank you so much, Kevin Hill. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for everything you're doing. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.